Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 91 with Matt Collins. Yeah, it took a while to get to the delicious part, but uh, my relationship with food was um, was good. No one in my family was that great of a cook. My parents got separated when I was pretty young, and so I started just, I don't know, I guess copying like Jacques Pen or Emerald or whatever and just trying to cook. And then I guess I had uh, my mother try to turn me into like a cash cow, like very unsuccessfully. Like I guess this is before like Flynn McGarry. She wanted me to have like some like, kid chef book thing and so but her approach was awful and it actually made me not like cooking for a while or she would go to like the doctor's office and get like one of those like cooking magazines and try to get me to recreate it and take the picture on this awful photo and like an awful picture to like pitch it to somebody and I was like very adamant about not doing it and then it became this weird project she tried to do for a while and then luckily for me she gave up. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spear. On the show, I have conversations with culinary entrepreneurs and people in the food and beverage industry who took a different route. They're caterers, research chefs, personal chefs, cookbook authors, food truckers, farmers, cottage bakers, and all sorts of culinary renegades. I myself fall into the personal chef category as I started my own personal chef business, Perfect Little Bites, 10 years ago. On this week's show, I have Matt Collins. Matt's been cooking since he was a child. In fact, his mom had hopes of him becoming a child cooking star. After graduating from the Culinary Institute of America, he took his career to New York City, becoming a sous chef at 21 years old, working for The Smith, Keen Steakhouse, Wolfgang Puck, and Smith & Walensky. He continued his education in Europe, including time at Institute Paul Bocuse. After a decade working in New York City, he decided to take what he'd learned back to his hometown, where he started Chef Collins Events, a personal chef business that specializes in customized dinners and pop-up events. As a personal chef myself, I really love to dig in to see both the similarities and differences in our business models. We talked for a long time, like over two hours, and I had to cut out a lot of crazy sidebars. I think this conversation is great for anyone who's already a personal chef or looking to become one. There's also a lot of value if you have any type of food business. We talk about topics such as client acquisition, marketing, customer demographics, what to charge, and being able to satisfy yourself creatively. We also discuss sourcing products, managing your time, and menu creation. Hear about his non-traditional photo shoot, and learn who really created McGriddles. I want to give a quick shout-out to our newest Patreon supporter, Scott Thompson. If you're listening, Scott, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And if you'd like to be like Scott... You can find out more at patreon.com forward slash chefs without restaurants. Right now, I have some recipes up on the page and there's more to come soon. And thank you to this week's sponsor, Olive and Basket. With more than 30 each oils and vinegars, Olive and Basket is my go-to for specialty food items. They also have seasoning blends, sauces, jams, pasta, honeys, mustards, gift baskets, and so much more. This weekend, I picked up some smoked olive oil and a lemon cucumber vinegar. I don't think I've ever had anything I didn't like from their shop. Sharon and Cindy do a great job curating a wide selection of items that are loved by both professional chefs and home cooks. 
Located in Frederick, Maryland, their shop is at 5231 Buckystown Pike, but you can order all their products online and have them shipped directly to your house. Go to oliveandbasket.com, and the link is in the show notes. And now, on with the show. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great week. Hey, Matt, welcome to the show. How's it going? Oh, good, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. It's uh, I'm excited to talk to you. We first met, I guess, because you came on as kind of a listener to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I, I guess that's how I found you, or vice versa. Yeah, I can't, I can't pinpoint exactly, but yeah, I definitely started listening to the show and have enjoyed it, and then... Uh, I guess it helps your closing every week where you're like, if you want to be on the show, just talk to me. And then I don't just from interacting with each other. So thank you. You're welcome. Well, you know, I, as a personal chef myself, I want to reach out. You know, I love all people who are doing different things in the food world. But for me, you know, when I get to talk to a personal chef, because it's also education for me, I want to hear about what you're doing and what works and, and what doesn't work. So so for the, all, all those listening, Matt does have a personal chef business, and we'll get into that a little bit. But why don't we backtrack a bit? I want to learn about you and food. How did you get into food and cooking? Were you always a, a lover of all things delicious? Yeah, it took a while to get to the delicious part, but uh, my relationship with food was um, was good. No one in my family was that great of a cook. My parents got separated when I was pretty young, and so I started just, I don't know, I guess copying like Jacques Pepin or Emerald or whatever and just trying to cook. And then I guess I had uh, my mother try to turn me into like a cash cow, like very unsuccessfully. Like I guess this is before like Flynn McGarry. She wanted me to have like some like, kid chef book thing and so but she, her approach was awful and it actually made me not like cooking for a while or she would go to like the doctor's office and get like one of those like cooking magazines and try to get me to recreate it and take the picture on the, this awful photo and like an awful picture to like pitch it to somebody and I was like very adamant about not doing it and then it became this weird project she tried to do for a while and then luckily for me she gave up that's the most amazing, weird story that's ever kicked off this podcast. I didn't know anything about that. Almost like you were like a Hollywood kid, but... Uh... Well, the book never even got pitched. It never even got finished. It was like this binder of papers with like highlights and scribbles and these like bad printed like four by six photos. And it really made me not like cooking because it just like sucked the joy out of it. And it's actually a story I didn't think of until I was speaking to somebody the other day. Yeah. Then luckily for me, I was like a boy scout and stuff. So, you know, we, you know, had pig roast and, and, and cooked like camp while camping. And then that kind of got me back into, Oh, I do like doing this. And then I like culinary program in high school. And I went to CIA when I was like 17. Did you do pig roast when you were in boy scouts? Yeah. Yeah. yeah upstate New York. Yeah. Wow. That's hardcore. I'm a Eagle scout myself and I never did anything that cool. I mean, we did some pretty cool stuff, but never a pig roast. Yeah, there was a uh, a guy who I guess like the scout leader. He uh, had a nice, real nice cabin upstate New York, and uh, he'd do a pig roast once a year. And you know, we'd all help out and do stuff. And um, that actually was unbeknownst to me, like an introduction to a lot of different kinds of food because you'd stop at really interesting um, specialty shops up the way, like cheese marks and stuff. So I remember like Jarlsberg Swiss and like summer sausage, and you know what I mean. Like I guess as like a twelve year old kid, that's really your I guess uh, in a nicer introduction to like charcuterie and cheese compared to like a Lunchable. It sounds like you had a much better food experience in Boy Scouts than I did. In fact, I remember when I went to culinary school prior to my scout leader made some almost like a dig to, I guess, my dad that like, oh, well, Chris never even showed interest in cooking when we were on scout trips. I can't believe he's going to be a chef. Like some weird bullshit like that that still resonates with me, but I don't know. Me and my friends, 
we did try to take claim to the fact that we invented the McGriddle sandwich. Obviously, my name's Matt, so like we jokingly put a syrup M on it. This is years before McDonald's came out with it. Um, it was like a pancake sandwich that we did in a cabin trip once in the winter. Like it was so much snow, there's nothing to do, so we ate a lot that day. But we obviously didn't have the lawyers as you know middle school age kids eventually down the road to sue McDonald's, but we like you know we didn't spearify the maple syrup and put it in the bun like i guess that was like fran adria but <laughs> the the basic concept i think somehow they were watching us and and they know that we invented the McGriddle sandwich has fran adria ever spearified maple syrup i wonder i don't know i remember in one of his books i feel like didn't he come up with like cool ranch doritos i could be making this up but i think he worked for a lot of like r&d after el bully closed and i think or even in the off season and I think he actually did work for a lot of like fast food brands developing like flavor profiles and extracts and stuff. So you went to CIA uh, for culinary, correct? Uh, yeah, I did. I went when I was uh, like day or two after I turned 17. I love to get you when you're young, I guess. Well, I had heard at some point they were making you have industry experience before you went. Was that the case when you went? I want to say they chopped that in about 2005. Um, I did have experience. I worked at, pardon me, I worked at a couple of restaurants in New Jersey doing like unpaid internships and, and whatnot. And I had a, a culinary program in my high school. So I had like a letter of recommendation from that person. And I had like a couple hundred hours of like experience from the restaurant there. They might've even gotten rid of it months before I applied, but either way I had it covered. So I wasn't that worried. But uh, interesting experience, like you discussing the Hogwarts Gryffindor. It did feel like going to Hogwarts, um, the school. You know, if you've ever been there, it's very unique looking. Yeah, I've never been there. Everyone says you have to go, especially people who don't realize there's like a Johnson Wales CIA rivalry. They'll be like, have you ever gone up to Hyde Park? Like, they don't even say Culinary Institute. Like, they know that I know what they're talking about. It's like, no, I've never been. Like, I mean, and I don't really care about rivalry. Like, I would totally go. I just haven't gotten around to going. Well, I don't know. I don't even know if there's really a rivalry anymore because I almost thought it would be like this like insane, like fraternal brotherhood, like the Illuminati. But in reality, if you're outside of a, the big city, more times than not, if someone is a CIA grad, they don't want to give you a job. If you're in a city, they're like, oh, great. This guy's going to, you know, like tornay potatoes at like my French restaurant because I'm Daniel Balud. Yeah, we want that person. But if you go outside of a major city, like in New Jersey, anyone who went to CIA is like, oh, yeah, I went to CIA. And I'm like, yeah, I did too. So you're thinking like, good. And they're like, oh, no, like, I don't want to give you a job. Like, you're, you're, you don't know anything. You're, you're a dork. You wear a neckerchief. That's so tough. But I found not exactly the same thing. But, you know, when I went to Johnson Wales, they talked about how much, like, credibility and prestige there was. But I moved to Seattle, and I remember, like, no one knew what it was. Like, I went and did interviews, and people were like, Johnson Wales, is that, like, your local community college? I'm like, I spent, like, $200,000 and have a bachelor's in culinary. Like, no, it's not. Uh, you know, like, what are you talking about? How do you not understand this? It's, like, one of the top two. This was 1998. It's like, there's only two culinary schools, and that's one of them. Well, you actually, you did go to Europe, didn't you? I did later. Yeah, I saved up money for a while and then I got a good credit line and I maxed out a bunch of credit cards in about 2015 or 2014 maybe. I went to Europe for a couple months and uh, I had a good time. Were you getting paid to work there or was it all unpaid staging? It was a, a few unpaid stages. Um, I networked enough in the city that I was able to get like a couple different tours and audit some classes that the 
Paul Bocuse Institute in Lyon. And um, uh, I made a pretty sick list of like restaurants to hit up. So I got to eat at like all the classic places. Like, you know, I ate at like Paul Bocuse's restaurant. I remember like crying while I was eating like the truffle soup and the thing. Cause like, it felt like surreal. Like it felt like I wasn't supposed to be there. So it was like really, really odd, but it was a great trip. So you jumped right into working in New York City after culinary school. Is that right? Yeah, about a year after. I really, back to planning, I didn't really plan. So I didn't get an um, an internship anywhere because the money they offer you after culinary school was not good. And, I, you know, taking out the loans for school, it was like, well, I can't go work for Dynex Group and make, you know, seven fifty eight dollars an hour and be able to pay my bills or or whatever. So I kind of went back to New Jersey, did odd jobs and whatnot. And then eventually I got a call from a friend saying he wanted to go to India for a couple months. Can you work at the restaurant I work at and whatever? And then I ended up working there for like a year. And then that's how I got kind of got like my foot in the door. It sounds very uh, entitled. It was literally like handed to me with a phone call. Hey, come work salad station at Smith Walensky's for a couple months. And I showed up and they liked me enough that they kept me. Did you have a favorite place you worked at in New York or someplace that you learned the most? Well, I guess it was favorite, but maybe more for the the post-work activities. Um, I worked at a really small restaurant um, called Respite um, in Midtown that closed a couple years ago. Um, the chef's now at Lathoon in New York. His name's uh, Nahid Ahmed. Uh, he used to work at like Les Finas. He was like really close with Grey Coons for a long time. So it was like that last of like kind of the old school um, well, they're still old school guys, but they're not as frequent anymore. You have a lot of this um, newer newer generation. So that was a restaurant that really kind of blew my mind. And I was really happy to work at. And, um, you know, the new restaurant's really great. So if you're ever in New York, uh, you should definitely you should definitely go. So you started your own personal chef business like a year ago. Is that right? Yeah, a year and change, like a year and a half, like October 2019. What made you do that? And at that time? I don't know. I was approaching like nine and a half years in New York. I just left the restaurant I was running for two years. That was definitely like my favorite job I've ever had. Obviously, you know, all jobs are still challenging to an extent. So there was times that, you know, you're, you're stressed out, but in hindsight, like that's the job that got away. You know what I mean? The job I loved that if someone was like, what job would you have for the rest of your life? It was that job. I really loved it. I took a job somewhere else. It was technically executive sous chef, but the chef was never there. I really got thrown in a bad situation. I really didn't like it. Uh, My father passed away. And then uh, I ended up quitting that job, mostly just through disdain uh, of the business. Like I I still went to work six, seven days a week. Like I didn't go to the funeral. I didn't do any of that kind of stuff. And then literally I still got like no support. So I was just kind of like really like done. And then I was doing a little restaurant consulting and I got a lot of kidney stones. So I had to go to the hospital and get flushed out, a bunch of kidney stones lasered out of me. And it just made me feel like really, really tired. So I was like emotionally and mentally tired. And then there's like all these other feelings of just like, you know, how am I going to pay my $2,000 a month rent? All my bills are stacking up. Like, I don't have any leads. Like, it's a weird time of year. My lease is ending. So I kind of just went in the, like, full, like, fuck you, New York mode, where I was like, I don't 
I looked around. I didn't see anything that was going to make me happy or anything I was motivated enough to make me happy. So I decided to move back to New Jersey where I was from. I was taking care of a sick family member for a little bit. And then I decided to start this business because I couldn't think of a restaurant that I wanted to work at, if that makes any sense. I did one cooking job at a country club for a couple months. And I was like, this is like the last thing I want to do is be chopping up a hot dog with scrambled eggs at six o'clock in the morning for the same guy every day. And yeah, so this business ended up starting from speaking to someone who worked there who wanted to do dinner parties in the off season. Had you ever done this on the side at all? Because I've talked a lot about like, I did this on the side while I had a job. It sounds like you kind of just jumped right into this. Well, you were very, very smart. You planned it out. You got a client list and all that stuff. Not saying I did it poorly. I knew I wanted to start some sort of like very small restaurant at some point, but obviously I don't have the funds to throw down like $800,000 or whatever on like a closet sized restaurant somewhere down at the shore to just do small dinners like Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So this, we were discussing this idea in the off season, uh, me and a friend of mine, the guy I worked with. And then when push came to shove, I asked him if he wanted to do it. And he was like, no, nah, I'm like kind of really busy. I don't want to do it. So I tried to figure out what, what was definitely going to hurt the business, what was going to streamline stuff and what was going to be what something I would want to attend in, in, in New Jersey. And luckily for me, a lot of the customers who I've had are people who are like, Oh, I used to live in the city or I used to work in the, especially now with COVID, I used to work in the city and I have an anniversary and I didn't, I wanted to do something special. And so that's like, I'm really lucky that I took the time to kind of, kind of sand it all down, but I did jump into it very quickly. I did my first public dinner, like a month after I launched like my website and Instagram and stuff. Well, that's not bad. So what was your first dinner and how did, I want to talk about client acquisition in general. Like how do you find your customers? Or how do they find you? So when I started the business, I did everything you're supposed to. I did like a Yelp. Uh, I actually was really late on the Google page setup. I didn't do that for about six or seven months. I thought it automatically would appear from setting everything else up. But I tried to get myself as many different pages. So I was doing Eventbrite, ticket sales, Yelp, Google, my own website, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. So I just wanted to have a good spread. And I guess I find clients by just being like relentless like I'm really bad with Instagram. I'm like on there all the time. So I have no shame. I'll tell everybody exactly what I do. I used to, when restaurants were open, go to restaurants that I thought were, you know, one of the, the better restaurants in New Jersey within 45 minutes of me. And I would just like every photo of everyone who ate there until my account got shut down. So when I first started Instagram, my account would get locked all the time for like a week. And people were like, Matt, you're not posting. I'm like, oh, I'm locked. I'm locked out. And people were like, what? And so since COVID, I do that now with like surrounding towns by me. So I don't have like a spreadsheet of like hit these towns on Monday, these towns on Tuesday. I'm not that committed to it. But if I'm like, oh, I like someone mentions a town to me. Oh, hey, I'm from I'm from Long Branch. I'm like, oh, I haven't like spammed Long Branch in a while. And I'll go down the list. And then once in a blue moon, I get a call from someone from a town. And I'm like, I must have liked this person's picture. And they must have checked out my my stuff. And now I'm you know, doing a, you know, a 15 person party, making enough money for the week. Cause I was swiping on Instagram on the toilet, not paying attention. You know what I mean? I do get very strange DMs sometimes from like radical people with radical ideas. And I'm like, Oh no, dude, I just like the picture. Cause you posted it in my hometown. Yeah. I'm yeah. not trying to join your, 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 your cult or, or whatever. Uh, you know, I don't want to buy the 
the your your finger painting that you did. <laughs> Sorry. So I get really weird DMs all the time. I actually won concert tickets doing this. Well, I've never won tickets doing that, but I do the same thing. I mean, that, but really, that makes sense. Like in town, you know, we have Volt Restaurant, Brian Voltaggio, like really well mm-hmm. known. And it's like, if I want my uh, experience to be on par with something like that, like who are the people who are going to a fine dining restaurant who spend over $100 a head who are looking for that kind of thing? So it's very easy to go and just like find the Volt page or hashtags or people who check in, for, you know, via location and then just go on and start liking their photos and commenting on their photos. And I guess maybe it is kind of weird that a random stranger's like, that turbo dish looks delicious and then just like bounce out. But that's what I did. It helps. You're like indirectly inception, like planting a seed in their mind. Like this can be you. And like, I try to be super uh, accessible. Like my pricing, I believe is very similar to yours where it is accessible, where literally like anyone can get it. I've done dinners in one bedroom apart, like studio apartments. I've done them in townhouses. I've done them in crazy, whatever size, four or five car garage mansions for whatever reason. I don't know why you have that many garages, you know, it's about finding that access, trying to get people to understand what you want to do. Like, I don't do the most cutting edge food by any means, but, you know, compared to like a, a, a wedding hall or a golf course or a diner in this area, maybe my food looks better or maybe my food tastes better or maybe there's a little more nuance. And therefore, it's about trying to find people who are interested in having that cuisine and not going to the same restaurant they love two, three times a week for the last couple of years, even if it is a great restaurant and they do love it. Cause that's my, one of my favorite things is you, you have a client and they tell you like this happened a couple of weeks ago. And they're like, I go to this one restaurant. Have you been? And I was like, yeah, I went once. I really liked it. And they're like, I go three, four times a week. It's my favorite restaurant. So you have these people and yeah, they go to the restaurant uh, three, four times a week, but they're, which is a good restaurant, but they're, you know, they're interested in finding something else they like and to be able to have the dinner in their home, to be able to have that extra couple of glasses of wine or, or, or cocktails or whatever, or not, you know, just be able to have me clean up, take the trash out and walk out the door is like a good experience. And that's like what I tried to set up and what I, what I tried the offer like from the start. Are your customers pretty adventurous with trying new things or, and, and how do you stay uh, satisfied and interested in what you're doing? Like I'll say, you know, my customers, We'll try some new things, but it usually tends to be like appetizers, maybe desserts, but like entrees tend to be like, we want a ribeye or a crab cake or a, a rack of lamb, and I can't get them to do something more interesting. Like, what are you finding? Somehow, surf and turf is the pinnacle of food in uh, in New Jersey. It's like no one saw a chef. It's my molten chocolate cake. It's It's not just New Jersey. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Like fancy dinner. We're spending $100. I want a filet mignon. Like I hear it all the time. Oh, the filet mignon's an easy trick around. If anyone says filet mignon, like I'll do a better cut of steak. That's still not a super interesting thing. Yeah, it's not even that it's not interesting. It's just not good. Yeah. So I'm like, I don't want to be like, even if you like filet mignon, I don't want to have to overpay for filet mignon, cook you filet mignon, have it not be good. And then it's my fault. Yeah. You know what I mean, like, I'm sure there's people who make a filet mignon that they somehow managed to make it delicious. 
I have no energy in my life to try to figure out how to make filet mignon delicious. I'd rather just use a cut of meat that is already delicious. My my move is I know a lot of people don't like fat and that's why they don't like prime rib and ribeye, but I'll get a ribeye and then I'll cut the fat and the ribeye roll piece off and then I'll render out the fat and then you have that nice circular piece of the center of the ribeye and then just cook it in ribeye fat and then I have like scrap, you know, ribeye roll for me to eat. I trim down the ribeyes. They don't get like the whole piece that all that fat's trimmed. The fat's rendered down for another application. The leftover meats, obviously what I eat, you know what I mean? And then, you know, you kind of figure it out. And then, you know, if I'm buying extra, then, you know, if I have a dinner the next day or within the next couple of days that I can use that scrap to do like, Oh, they wanted steak tartare or something, trim it up, you know, buy that one cut of meat. Um, Cause I don't really use distributors super often or order from a restaurant often. So it's, it's kind of interesting to source um, products because I try I can't promise something I can't get my hands on. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, that's the hardest thing for me. I find seafood is the hardest. Like I know if you want a rack of lamb or ribeye or something, you're always going to get it. But people want these fish menus. It's like, well, if you're planning a dinner three months from now, I can't guarantee, like, I know I can get salmon. Like I won't serve like tilapia, but like, what are the fish that you can always have always get? You know, I can always get snapper, but like, I can't tell you that I can get rockfish or sea bass or I can get, you know, roughy or whatever. That's been one of the challenges. I'll say seasonal fish and then they'll try to narrow it down and then I'll see if I can do it. And then, I'll, but I'll, anytime people want a fish that isn't super common or I know ebbs and flows, I'll try not to like commit to it. If that makes any sense. Cause it's just, it's just, it's just difficult. Like luckily there's a couple good fish markets over here. There's a big, uh, like a local vendor that typically has everything, but sometimes you go to these people and, um, they're just like, oh yeah, no, I don't want to order that. And I'm like, you, you get it from, you get it from the Fulton fish market. You can't just tack on like a, a box of uni for me or something else. And it's like a big eye roll where I'm like, it sounds like really frustrating. Like it shouldn't be a pain, but it's something I've had a lot of hurdles with, but I, I've never been that stressed about seafood. You know, if I say seasonal crudo and then I don't like any of the fish in stock, like, you know, scallops are always around, like they're a great substitute. It's usually when I have a customer who wants it as their center of the plate for the entree and like maybe have like a shellfish allergy. So they want this like very big list of like fish fillets to choose from. Like shellfish, again, like you can probably get every single kind every time. But like, what is that Mm. fillet of fish that you can get? Like, it's just hard to sometimes spec that out. Yeah. Well, also too, like a lot of the fish you can get all the time sometimes is, doesn't have a, a name that people want. You know what I mean? Like no one wants codfish. They think of like, uh, you know, Peter Pan, Captain Hook, like no one wants to eat it, but it's a great fish. And if you have a, you know, a piece of codfish wrapped in prosciutto, I mean, are you really going to be that upset? It's not monkfish. Right. I'm not yeah. going to tell you it's monkfish. If it's not, I'm going to be honest and say what it is on the plate. But like, you know what I mean? Like not every grocery store is, has fresh monkfish. They'll have that monkfish that you can tell was uh, freezer burned because that skin's so thick that it's, you know, been in the freezer for God knows how long, like a year or two. <laughs> so do you drive around to a whole bunch of grocery stores and markets to do your shopping? I used to drive around to more places. Obviously in the winter, the winter is the worst for me because the farmer's market isn't open. 
So I used to be like a farmer's market rat. I used to go to, uh, every Thursday morning to Long Branch, which is right down down the road. And then I would base the menus I was sending out by what I was seeing at the farmer's market. And then granted, the farmer's market isn't your best option. I had an issue with squash. I did a pop-up in October. I said definitely it was going to be delicata squash. I went to the farmer's market. The week before they had you know, three wheelbarrows full of honey nut, delicata, acorn, all like kombucha, all this different squash. And then I went the next week when I needed to pick it up, they straight up had no squash. <laughs> but luckily there's, um, there's a couple markets down here that carry real, uh, you know, more unique produce. Like obviously they have contracts with like Baldor and stuff. You can see it's all like Hempworth farms and all the, those larger farms that get distributed, like the chef's garden kind of stuff. And so like, it is helpful, but you can't guarantee that, you know, you sell someone Jerusalem artichokes, you, I might be shooting myself uh, in, in the foot. So that's something I really try my best not to do, but try my best to keep the menus interesting for the customer and for me. Yeah, I didn't realize how much time I was going to spend driving around to different places to get my stuff when I started this business. And some of it was because price like you know uh, i was being too cheap i think that's one of the traps that we fall into is like because you're looking at profit margins like oh well i could get all my stuff at this one place but it's like oh i can get like a dollar a pound less if i drive cross town here and then you're easily spending like six hours driving around and that's just stupid that's like something i tell people now like just cost of doing business like your time is worth something. And I don't think enough people factor that in. Like, what is your time worth? I'll tell you, I just started using Instant Cart like two months ago and it's changed my life. Like I was really particular about letting someone else pick out my stuff, uh, but I haven't had any issues at all. And I'm even letting them pick proteins a lot of times. Like it started with me ordering like pantry supplies. Like you can get my salsa and, you know, some tomatoes or whatever, but then I would pick up the stuff, park the car and go in and go like pick out my ribeyes. And I was like, oh, well, you know what? I'm just going to, you know, give it a shot and see how they do. And they've done great. And I've had no issue with that. And to get like all those hours back has been amazing. I would like to get busy enough to the point where I had to use Instacart. But I mean, typically on a busy week, I'll do like three parties and I'll try to condense my shopping and prep. So it's really not that crazy. So it'll be like, okay, cool. I'll make my puree. It can be used on Thursday and then used on Saturday. So luckily some of that carries over where I'm only going to the store once. Obviously I use a lot of pickles and stuff like that. Preserves ferments on the menu uh, as well. I don't know. You see, there's a lot of garnishes. It's like that stuff's like mise en place out, like good to go. Like I have a whole little mini fridge with just like pickled honjamengis, pickled pearl onions, like so how are you getting a number of clients to have the same items? Like, do you have the same menu and it's just like menu of the week or is it just working out? Because I give my customers like free reign of like menu things and I can have three days in a row where they have totally different five course menus. So I heard you discuss this recently and I really appreciate you talking about it. But um, well, actually a couple of times I've heard you discuss this. And so pretty much what I do is I, I have on my form, you know, taste preferences, food allergies, any special notes. So the special notes is like, oh, it's an anniversary or a birthday. What is that person's favorite foods or, or something I'll ask on the phone on a consultation or in the email. And then I'll include that stuff. So I don't have any preset menus. I'll draft something up based on when the party is going to be like seasonability and then what I know I can get my hands on. And then if I have a part, if I have a menu set in that week, and, you know, there's a good profitable item 
or there's like um, a real labor intensive item, I will try to, you know, sell that item again um, if it fits the dietary restrictions. Are you really trying to start your menu from scratch like every time you have a dinner then? I do, but I mean, so the restaurant that I said was my favorite job, I had that job for two years. And I think the second year I had the job, I did like a ridiculous amount, like 350 menu items or something crazy. So I have this like Rolodex of recipes, menus, flavor combinations. And so it doesn't feel that hard. But I think when a guest hears the menu is being created for them, they take that as like, oh, that's nice. But then when I have a difficult, just, you know, for lack of a better term, customer, something with a lot of buttons, I'll just send maybe three items per course to select, which is similar to what you do. But I'll try my best to roll that out either from like the greatest hits menu, something that I want, I've been meaning to try something I've seen recently that I want to try something from other menus that week to alleviate a little bit of prep. And then if they pick it, great. If they don't pick it, who cares? Like, you know what I mean? Like I'm getting paid. I'm supposed to deliver. So I, I don't get upset by it, but the, the custom aspect has been difficult, but it helps me in the booking process to kind of weed out. Not that I tell people not to have a party, but it gets the customer in the mindset of like, okay, I'm not going to get garden salad, shrimp cocktail, I don't, something else boring, steak. So what if someone comes to you with those requests? Because because I get that too, where like, it was just a couple of weeks ago where someone came and they said, you know, like we want to have a dinner and they hadn't even seen my menu. And they said, we want... Um, you know, like a salad with blue cheese, we want shrimp scampi and cheesecake. And then I went back and I still was like, okay, like I can do those things. But also like, here's my menu of my custom things that I do really well, that are maybe similar to what you want. And their response was like, no, that's what we want. And you're just kind of like, wah, wah. well, obviously, I'll, depending on the size of the party, uh, a larger party literally sends me a garbage menu. I had somebody send me a garbage menu and I was like, I will do it 100%. They backed out due to COVID. Um, this was maybe in September. They sent me literally a list because I guess they had a different private chef or they were supposed to get this menu at a country club or something. So they sent me this list, this menu. It was ridiculous. I had a big conversation about w Wagyu beef and how much of an upcharge that's going to be because like, you can just get USDA Prime and I can do it at my regular pricing. But if you want Wagyu beef, I can't possibly purchase that and charge you what I'm charging because I'm not like a charity. <laughs> but when I get those kind of requests, I'm always going to include it. I just did a menu earlier this week. The guy said he really wanted Caesar salad. I'm going to try my best to make the best Caesar salad at one course. I'm going to go real heavy on anchovies. I'm going to try to do a bunch of pickles and accoutrements on there, try to make it the best one I can, just get really nice baby gem lettuce, really try to make the best Caesar salad. But when I'm writing the menus, I'll take the suggestions. As long as the suggestion isn't something um, not cost effective, you know what I mean? If the person's like, I want a whole lobster, I will try to shy away from a whole lobster because yeah. A, there's it's not fun. It doesn't financially work for the menu price cost. And I don't even know if I have a plates large enough to put a whole lobster on. I mean, maybe my biggest plates are 10, 11 inches. Like, that's like a whole other purchase I would need to buy, like something with a giant lip that you'd be able to dump a lobster boil into. 
This was the definitely the summer of the, we planned a 150 person wedding. We had a caterer. It's now 15 people. Our caterer won't do it. Here's our menu. Like the amount of times that someone just like gave me this menu that they had already done with another caterer. And a lot of them are like, my challenge was they had like the BS pre-made apps. They're like, well, we want mini quiche and we want this and that. It's like, I'm not like, the mini quiche <laughs> were probably coming from like Cisco, like, and not to knock, like I've had, you know, those frozen apps, but like, I don't do that. And there's no way that I'm going to be hand making mini quiche. Like if I can't make it from scratch, I'm not serving it. And I'm not doing like mini quiche and pigs in a blanket. Like I have 80 things that I could make for appetizers. Like here's what I do. So the past apps thing comes up for me a lot. I, I will edit I've done it seasonally where I take the old list. I take things off, like obviously tomatoes. It's not the summertime. And I kind of rotate it and I'll send a pretty big list for the hors d'oeuvres. I hate doing the hors d'oeuvres because it's super time consuming. Those are always larger parties. And so I bring somebody with me for larger parties. I heard you don't. I think you're fucking crazy. (laughs) No, no. I bring – so the max I do is uh, 20 people and over like 10 people I bring one and I've brought two people with me. Okay. I don't have – I don't have wait staff. Everyone who comes with me needs to be able to hold their own in the kitchen and cook. So like eight to 10 is kind of my break point where I assess. I would never do like a 12 to 15 person party by myself. That just like doesn't happen. You're better than me, man. I break at six. Oh, no. I can totally do like eight, maybe well, 10 Even running myself. the food back and forth to the table. No, you I just I – mean? I can do that myself. Uh, I don't know. I just feel like there's that one person waiting, and I hate the eyeballs on me. So Pick it up, son. Pick it up. I don't know. I'm just saying because then there's that buffer of getting out of their house and getting everything cleaned. But I will also say that it's helped me streamline my process because I was a little too fancy. You know, I think, you know, you start this business and you want to be impressive and not that I'm not anymore, but I was overcomplicating things. Like, you know, I came into it like wanting to put like 12 components on a plate. And I've talked a lot on this podcast about like the bullshit restaurants with like 17 components. And it really taught me to edit like what is the best bites of food that I can get out in a fast and concise manner. So every plate is not taking five minutes to plate and using tweezers and a bunch of sets of hands. So working by myself, I really was able to refine my cuisine. I started that way. So there was a little bit of an extra nuance at first that I like quickly saved for, I do, I do, I used to do public pop-ups where I would rent an Airbnb, do two different seatings, as long as they had a six to eight person dinner table and do like a six o'clock seating and like an eight thirty seating and sell tickets to it as like a promo um, to get people to want to throw their own party. And so like that, that's what I save the more intricate stuff for, or a pop-up at a restaurant. Where it's like, okay, I'm literally doing this once. I have a full restaurant kitchen. You know, you can say have the little extra bit of whatever there, but any menu I send anybody, it's based on can I execute this? You know what I mean? I have a 16 person party. I'm not selling them pasta because I'm not going to bring that many extra saute pans. You know what I mean? In order to toss, you know, make the sauce, mat it. And you know what I mean? Like, Oh, definitely. There's things I don't do for big parties. I mean, if you're getting beef for a big party, it's going to be a whole tenderloin or a whole ribeye. Like I'm not pan searing 12 steaks. Like it just can't happen. It's going to be like a whole roasted something. I learned my mistake last month with that. I had a big party of like 16 people and I had New York strips and I waited to sear them off and their hood wasn't sucking it up. And I had a lot of smoke everywhere. And luckily, all the food was very good, so no one was upset, but the kitchen got pretty smoky um, because the hood wasn't sucking up all the smoke from the cast iron pan. 
I wasn't thinking about talking about this, but you mentioned pop-ups. What are your, what do you know about the legality of those? And have you uh, looked into it and had any issues? Because around here, that's been really tough. So I've done some pop-ups in Airbnbs and have been told that they're essentially like illegal restaurants and that I should not be advertising ticket sales online. I think a lot of people don't understand the legalities of these things. And we all play a little fast and loose with regulations at times. And it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Yeah, state to state, um, for sure. But I didn't know if you had had any pushback or if that was something you were ever worried about. Well, that's actually really interesting because believe it or not, like being the weirdo I am, I planned on interviewing you a couple questions because I was something I've thought about a lot from listening to the show. You know, case in point, when COVID hit and I had to cancel three months worth of dinners, this is my only job. I thought, wow, in the future, if the world of virus ever comes back in, it'd be a really great resource for chefs who are at restaurants to instruct people whose sole income is catering. Hey, uh, how can you get unemployment or how can you get any benefits or how can you pay your bills, feed yourself and all that other stuff? Because literally when that stuff happened, I was like, I'm ready to do pretty much anything like rob a bank or something at this point. Cause like, I don't know when I'm getting any money ever again. Um, so the same with that, it, you know what I mean? I would love for down the road for chefs out restaurants to be a resource of like, how can people exchange ideas and how to make money? So legality wise of it, probably illegal, probably illegal. It doesn't bother me. Uh, no, I like to think of it because it's a ticket because it's a ticketed event. It's similar to how restaurants do it. So because of the ticketed event, if it's advertised as including a glass of wine or whatever, I leave a lot of the alcohol stuff out of it. Cause that's really what scares me. The food aspect doesn't scare me. I am more concerned with someone taking offense to thinking it's like a party or something and be like, Oh no, it's illegally serving alcohol, not having a liquor license, someone driving home intoxicated, which obviously five half pours of wine over the course of two hours, you can still drive a car. It's two, it's two drinks over two hours. So it's not like anyone, you know what I mean? Um, like taking taking that out of it and controlling the situation in that way. If really anybody did come for me, I'm sure I could hire a lawyer or something and work my way through it. But I think part of the fun for me from like a punk DIY aspect is like an actual underground dining club. Like I straight up called this Airbnb, told the guy, Hey man, I'm having a dinner party. Are you okay with that? The guy's like, okay, cool. Rent it, make a flyer. Don't tell anybody who didn't buy a ticket, the address. And then if the cops want to buy a ticket to my dinner party to summons me or give me a ticket, by all means, please do. Well, we, we actually worked with an Airbnb. My first collaborative Chefs Without Restaurants event, we did this. Like me and one other chef, we actually worked with the Airbnb owner and we're, she gave us the space and was like, oh, this would be a great opportunity to show off. Like, can I give them tours of the house? And we brought in like a bunch of influencers and people who shot video for us, uh, you know, complimentary. And we had this great party and stuff. Um, but then it ended up in both the newspaper and in Frederick Magazine and a bunch of blogs. And then there was some pushback about this. I was like, well, like we actually weren't selling tickets online. Like you had to know someone, like you had to know me or the other chef to be able to purchase tickets. And a lot of them were comped and it was more for like publicity. But the Department of Health, I, I think I've been kind of on their shit list for a little while for some of this stuff. But how are they going to get you? I mean, in all honesty... I haven't been that worried about it because it's just, I, I don't repeat the location. Uh, I've wanted to, cause it's like, wow, that was a great kitchen. That was a great space, great location, great price. 
but just to kind of keep it moving and keeping it fun and keeping the idea of it being this exciting thing you don't want someone to come to the thing again and be like it's the same place it's the same menu it's the same whatever i was supposed to do a pop-up in may at a bed and breakfast down at the shore and they're only allowed to sell food to people who are staying over like breakfast in the morning but they wanted to rent me out the space um because they had a really nice dining room it's an awesome victorian house and i was going to do it obviously pre-covid but i was worried about a bunch of cars being in the parking lot at night and someone calling the police, you know, they have, you know, a health inspected kitchen, uh, like commercial kitchen. Like it looks like, uh, you know, a hotel. And I was worried about that, but I was still willing to go through with it. Cause it's like, if I do get a fine, it's, it's a fine. Like, well, I don't know. Like, uh, it's, you know, unless like I, you know, poison a bunch of people or something, which how would that happen? It's like basic HACCP and food safety. Well, and you said HACCP. So that's another issue that you get into a lot is I've heard about needing like a different HACCP plan for those kitchens, because I've also talked about doing pop-ups like, you know, there's a deli downtown that has a space and they're closed every night. It's like, well, I want to use their space to do a pop-up. But then again, talking with the Department of Health, they said, well, like their HACCP plan covers like these breakfast foods and these whatever. And if I want to go in and serve like duck and all this stuff that their HACCP plan doesn't cover that. So like looking into things like having your own HACCP plan for your like traveling pop-up party. Well, maybe I have more of like a mafia-based food and beverage department in New Jersey because it was one of the first things I did. Like before I even built my website, I went down to the Department of Health, which for the whole county is located literally down the street. So I went in, asked to talk to whoever. They pretty much laughed at me. And they're like, just, you know, you have to fill out a form. You have to say you're preparing whatever. They're like, where's your business LLC? I'm like, well, I don't have one yet. They were like, well, why are you bothering us? I'm like, because I want to make sure that like, I don't get in trouble with you guys. They're like, oh, you won't get in trouble. Don't, you know, just do it out of like a, you know, professional kitchen or have a space. And then in my mind, instantly, while the person was talking to me, it's like, okay, well, uh, my friend at this restaurant is my space now on the record. And then in my head too, it's like, also, I was asking about when I do in-home dinners, they're like, well, if you prepare everything at that residence, it's fine. Yeah. In-home is a totally different thing. And I think that's what a lot of people have mis- misconceptions about is like, you're technically like a cert, like you don't need any licensing or anything. Like you don't have to have surf safe. You don't have to have liability insurance. Like those are good things to have, but you don't need them. Yeah. So like pretty much like, I don't like go and make chicken stock at these people's like houses. I come with everything just being picked up as if I was a restaurant. I have all the mise en place ready to go just for the final steps, mount the sauce with butter, adjust the seasoning, sear the proteins, warm up the vegetables. You know what I mean? That, that whole spiel. And so once I heard that, I was just like, it was kind of like one of those things where I'm like, how am I going to get them to want to bring me down? And luckily they don't yet. (laughs) So it's good. Um, And then I haven't come into any situations with pop-ups, even with the city doing pop-ups, I've never had any, any issues. Like it's just, okay, we're just serving different food this day. It's our County here. I mean, I've worked, I actually, one of my former chefs is a department of health inspector in a different County in Maryland. He's like, we would not be bothered at all. Like, like there's so much, so much that we need to oversee that like one guy doing a dinner for 12 people at an Airbnb is like small fish. Like we wouldn't even be bothered with that. Like, forget about it. Yeah, no, for sure. I guess at first I thought you meant like in restaurants, 
You know what I mean? You do like a pop at a restaurant. But in restaurants, I've been told pretty much you can't do them here in town. Like I had. How's sold- it any different than like a special? Like, oh, this is our soup of the day. Like, how is that any different? I'm the guy making the new soup of the day, except it's in a prefix menu. So what's the difference? Yeah, this no, this could be a whole episode. And that's why I'm always interested to see what people are encountering. Like here in Frederick, it's um, considered an, an event. Like if you're doing something out of the norm, it's an, an event. And then there's like event permitting. And then they oversee the jurisdiction of like food with it. So you can't just like do a pop up or take over. Like if I want to go do um, if I want to do food at a brewery. It has to be in conjunction with an event. Like, I can't just go on a Tuesday night and do, like, Taco Tuesdays at the brewery down the street. They say, like, what's the event? And then I could say, well, it's a beer release, and they get to decide if that's an event to them. So they actually have jurisdiction over what an event is and then if I can have food there or not. And it's so much red tape that it's not even worth it. The liquor probably hurts for sure, but um, obviously, if you've ever turned on the news, this is not for you, it's for people listening. Um, there's a lot of constitutionalists now. So by asking for the permit to do the event or gathering or protest or whatever, you're acknowledging the fact that you need permission when in reality you don't. I like literally watched some weird constitutionalist guy like go off on this. And I was like, oh, that's good to know. I'm just going to like literally have a copy of the constitution with me, I guess. I guess that's the thing people do now. And then be like, I don't know, dude, this is my my gun and this is my rights. And just maybe hold up a weird piece of paper and, and, and talk with like a piece of straw in my mouth and wear a cowboy hat. And then maybe they'll just leave me alone. Do you have typical customers or like a demographic? Like who, who's hiring you? I wish I knew. I wish I knew if I could do g- general uh, demographic, I'd say the youngest person to hire me uh, is a party I'm doing this weekend. And I want to say it's late twenties. That's the youngest person who's ever hired me. But typically I would say like mid thirties to late, early late 40s wow you you skew a lot younger than my customers for the most part although it's changing a little bit i have some older um customers but i wouldn't say they're the predominant base you know i i think what happens is the what i present myself as they take as some frou-frou where they just think it's like not for them which is fine. You know what I mean? Like I've had plenty of um, older customers and they've actually been some of the easier people to work with, happier, more grateful people and just fun to deal with. But no, I wouldn't feel like, uh, yeah, I would definitely say it's a little bit of a younger crowd, maybe mid thirties to late forties. Income of these people surprisingly is less than I would think a majority of the time. But that's a whole other aspect too. How do you judge somebody that way? Just because they have a studio apartment or or a condo or a townhouse or something, maybe that's all this extra money they have to spend on other things. You know what I mean? Especially taxes in this area are crazy, 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 crazy high. What I found really interesting is millennials get a really bad rap, but they pay the best. Like if we're going to talk about pay and like income and stuff, I found that they pay the best and they tip the best. That like they value things differently, whereas you could have... I could go to a party for older people who clearly have good income. You know, they've got the five-car garage and all that. And, you know, you didn't get to be rich by giving all your money away. Um, I didn't want we'll, to answer the question we'll, that we'll, way. We'll say, we'll say that. But then I'll do a bachelorette party for a bunch of girls in their 20s, and I'll get like a 40% tip, you know, because Maybe they're just the a ladies' man. Well, you know, I try, I try, but you know, like they, different generations value different things. And I think the younger generation tends to look at experiences and dining and having a good time. And, um, you know, I actually don't mind cooking for a younger crowd. 
I was speaking to somebody about this last night and I, I said the exact same thing you said. I said, you know, I see someone who, you know what I mean? Has like a dinged up Toyota in their driveway. That person's going to give me a better tip than the guy with the brand new still making payments on his, uh, I don't know, BMW X class or infinity, whatever nonsense. Um, you know, but that just kind of like, like is what it is. Um, you know, I don't mind, you know, I try to cover as much as possible, but I guess to what the, the you just said too, I offer wine recommendations and pairings. Um, so this ties in the legalities of it. I recommend three different types of wine per course. I write a list. I send them to the wine store to get, uh, to, you know, order it and get it shipped to their house. So I'm not purchasing the liquor. I'm literally just, it's like a corkage fee where I'm providing a glassware and additional coaster and I'm pouring it and I'm trying to open up people's eyes to alcohol that isn't distributed in New Jersey by using a New York um, state liquor store that can ship to New Jersey. So they're getting like some more natural wines, some interesting wines that you couldn't get at the store. And so like the legality behind that is like, should I be pouring it? Probably not, but it's not mine. It's like, what's the difference between me pouring their water? It's like a whole nonsense kind of thing. But I've noticed demographically, younger crowds, the younger clients are more into trying new wines and trying new beverages, um, you know, hiring a bartender to mix cocktails at the event. Because that's something I completely outsource if that does come up. Because a lot of times people are like, oh, we love having old fashions, martinis, yada, yada, yada like a rich older gentleman or something. And then you're like, okay, well it's a Saturday night. It's a month out. I have a couple bartenders that in the three to $400 range, if you want to rent them for tonight and the night and you provide the liquor, they'll probably bring ice and, and nonsense and or whatever they need their little bar set up, you know, and they're always like, Oh wait, it's that much. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to do it for free. Like I'll do a single batch cocktail or something. And you know what I mean? Mix it up real fast put it in the fridge and then have someone pour it for me and throw like a, you know, a little dehydrated lime wedge or lime disc in it or something. But it's like, I, I, I can't do everything. <laughs> like, totally. You know I, I do the same thing. I mean, because I, I do a lot of cocktail work like at home and I have a lot of photos of cocktails. And that's one of the first things people ask is like, can you recommend some signature cocktails? It's like, well, I'm not buying liquor, but I'll give you a list. So I might make like the non-alcoholic, like if there's some infusion or, you know, mm -hmm. shrub or syrup or something like I can do that and I can help you mix, but batching is the way to go. But like, especially if I'm by myself, like I cannot be like mixing cocktails and getting your appetizers ready. Like that's, that's a challenge. Yeah. For maybe like the first six months or so, I didn't, advertise that or put it on the questionnaire and i really missed out on a lot of people who would have been interested in that and then so i've added that to like my questionnaire to make sure that people are getting it because i used to be like oh no i'll mention it and then i would just forget and then i'd have people and they'd be like yeah we really know what kind of wine to drink and i'm just thinking to myself oh i hate myself like, i can't believe i forgot like because in all honesty that's like the easiest buffer to my my program you know what i mean i charge a hundred dollars extra for up and up to 15 people for the glassware, the wine recommendations, I spend like maybe half an hour picking wine, send it over. And then all you're doing is washing 30 glasses. Wow. I didn't do, I don't do any of that. I didn't realize that was something I could and should be upcharging for. Like people are like, can I have wine recommendations? And I just like tell them, I don't know what you can get at your store, drink what you like. And then we move on. No, no time is money, man. Time is money. A half an, to make a hundred dollars for like a half hour worth of work. I don't know. I mean, I feel bad saying it out loud, 
But it's no different than a corkage fee at a restaurant. If you bring a bottle of wine and they charge you 50 bucks just to open it. Yeah. And I guess if you're picking it out, I mean, I like that idea. I hadn't really thought about that because again, like I'm in an area where I service like five states, like where, where I am, you know, I'm 45 minutes from DC, um, but also Baltimore, but like Pennsylvania and West Virginia and Virginia. So people's like, what are your wine recommendations? Like, I don't know what you can get in Leesburg, Virginia, or I don't know what you can get in DC. You know, it's not as clear cut. So I'm always like, well, maybe get like a Pinot Grigio for this, but I don't know what you can get at your store down the street. I mean, I guess you could, I've done it with people who didn't want to order from the distributor in New York. And I've said, well, what store are you going to? Can you get me their website? So I've had people do that. I mean, you could ask what, what, you know, like some big wine wholesaler by them that they like to go to if they have a website and then go make those selections. They're not going to be like what I would think is the peak experience. But if you can help somebody who has no idea what wine they want to drink, and then they have a new favorite wine because you're like, oh, I've had this before or I'm generally familiar with this producer. I think they do a quality product at that price point Um, because I do that based on, I I take price points too. So if someone's like, I don't want to spend more than $20 a bottle, like I I will find wines that you can get, you know what I mean? I mean, most people don't really want to spend more than $35 a bottle. Yeah. I mean, but the amount of wine you can get uh, at that price range is like a predominant amount of the wines in the store. Well, that's good. That's something I'll, I'll have to think about. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely my my most helpful thing, especially if you're doing a party for two people. Yeah, I mean, for the night worth of work, you're really not with gas and everything else. Unless you get tipped well, you're really you're almost just doing it as an act of goodwill because you love the job and then hoping that they're going to refer you to somebody because you're really barely putting any money in your pocket. I'm so glad you said that. I'm sure you've probably heard me say that. Like, it's hard to say that because you definitely don't want a customer to to hear that really, but like, it's not worth doing. You know, I, I did a party last night for two people at, you know, $125 a head, but even with the tip and all that, like once you take out the food costs, like most adults make more than $200 a day at their job, you know, yeah. I, I think. So like, it's like, well, shit, I'm going to make like a hundred dollars profit. Maybe like, that's not worth it. This isn't a sustainable job. Like I still do it. And people tell me I'm crazy for doing it. I enjoy doing the dinners for two. You can do some really creative stuff and it's, and it's fun and hopefully it's lead gen, but like I could not have a sustainable business just cooking for two people a night. Like it wouldn't pay the bills. I don't get them that often. Um, February for me, I think I have five parties that are two people. So like on my end, I'm like, yikes, this this is going to be a rough month for me because I'm going to be running around working. And, I'm, you know, when I have the larger parties, I'm in a much better place. But that's why now after a year and a half of the business, I just have to raise my price $15 ahead. Because what is $15 really going to break the bank if you're hiring somebody for over $100 ahead anyway? Yeah. Well, I think that's been the big challenge with COVID is like, you're not even supposed to have big parties. Like almost all my big parties have disappeared. You know, I used to get a Saturday night where it's, you know, 10 people and that's, you know, like a thousand to $15. And now it's like, people aren't having those parties and it's like, oh, I got to pick up a dinner party for two. And now I'm going to make 200 bucks when I was making 1200 bucks. I do have a question about your marketing because you did I don't know if I'd call it a risque photo shoot uh, with you in a Santa costume. And you've posted them pretty freely throughout Instagram. Like, what is your thought behind that photo shoot and the marketing? And what's been the response to that? 
Well, I have an unreleased Dennis Rodman photo shoot, which I may or may not have leaked to you on Twitter. My whole outlook is if you work for yourself, obviously I need to be not a total piece of garbage, but there's no like corporate guidelines. If I think if I want to make a joke or I can do something, as long as it's not like a cruel thing that would get you canceled in air quotes in regular society, then I think it's, it's fair game. If I want to wear a speedo in the summer, eating a super mustardy hot dog or something like grill, like grilling on the grill and say, Hey, what are you doing July 4th? And I think I should be able to do that advertising because it's, it's my thought process was how can I get people who don't like food to send these pictures to other people and say, who the fuck is this person? What is this person's problem? Do you know who this person is? Does their food look good? And I was like, how can I trick people into checking out what I'm doing? Because if you're just going to post a picture of like a a fish dish every day, only fishermen, fish purveyors, cooks, and foodies, air quotes again, um, are going to be interested in it at all. And how do you translate likes and engagement online into actual paying customers? I did, I want to say 45 dinners last year, and I would easily say a dozen to 15 of them were generated from Instagram that I could attribute to Instagram. No, I mean, it's it's definitely interesting. You know, we've, we've talked a little bit about brand and what your brand is. I mean, I think it shows your personality a little and a sense of humor there. It, it just, it also maybe weeds out some people who you wouldn't want as customers. I want everyone as a customer. Uh, okay. I don't, well, not everybody, but I don't mind. Like I don't have an ideal customer. My ideal customer is someone who's going to have a good time and enjoy it. And well, I guess that's what I mean is like, you're, it just, it shows that you're not going to be like super stuffy and uptight. Uh, I think I have that ability too. And that's like something that was really funny. So I was, uh, when I started my business, I joined the business networking group and everyone in the business networking group was like, Matt, like you're, you're a crazy person. Like something's wrong with you. And I'm like, no, I'm just, I'm not at work right now. Like, I want to have fun. Like, I all, I know all you guys. I see you all every week. Like, I can be myself. And they're like, how do clients interact with you? It turned out a number of clients knew people in the networking group, and it came to light months later. And they're like, oh, no, Matt came to my house and did a dinner. I'm like, he's great. He's, what do you mean? He's he's weird? He's, he was super professional. He was great. <laughs> and then people were like, wait, that guy is fine? And so I just decided to, like, not not worry about it and just try to enjoy the business as much as I can. Cause what's the point of presenting myself in some like not fun way, like wearing like a black chef coat and like having the knives and being super serious. And I don't know, like some like corny, like hell's kitchen kind of vibe. Yeah, like all the chef like, profile photos where you have your arms crossed and you look like you just had to berate one of your cooks or something. Yeah. Where it's like that whole stigma and all that stuff. No one wants that anymore. You know what I mean? And even if you've been reading the news or whatever, like that whole David Chang story that came out this week, where it's just like, as much as he talked about it himself, now people are, I don't really fully, I can't fully wrap my brain around, around it. Now people are outraged or upset or whatever, where it's like, I've had a lot of shitty bosses. I personally hate all the shitty bosses. There's celebrity chefs who owe me money from me working for like a week or two and be like, yeah, like, Where's my money? Like, what is the point of me going online or saying that? Like, like, what do I benefit from it? Is their life going to be changed because one person doesn't go and have dinner because so-and-so owes me $2,000? Like, 
I don't understand like what is the point of being worried about it as long as you know you're doing what you're supposed to be doing and you're providing the experience that people want and so I thought why not try my best but I do find I mean we we're talking I think before air you know like my TikTok videos and and some of the reels I've done on Instagram they convert really well like they're funny you know I don't think that in general my uh, Instagram feed or my Facebook is like particularly funny, but I feel when I get videos, like that's where the personality can come out and they do well. And just like the video of my podcast thing, you know, got like 5,000 views or something like right away, I think because it was, you know, it was funny. And then if that means someone then finds my food and my business because of that, like awesome. Why can't you just have a little bit of fun and nuance in it? Like, I don't want to just post a picture of like a home dinner table and then write this like drawn out boring caption of like hey do you and your family miss restaurants do you want to go on vacation i can make the food for you like i work for myself so if i want to be wacky and weird at least i get enjoyment out of doing it what's the future hold for your business i mean do you have a vision for whether it be growth new things you're working on expansions any of that yeah yeah for sure um so initially the business I did want to start, I was discussing earlier was like some sort of brick and mortar at some, some, uh, point. I think the next move is to, uh, relocate somewhere else in New Jersey, have a place that I could try to do a dinner once a month at my own residence, which is edgy for sure. Um, I'm literally inviting a heap load of legal problems to my doorstep, uh, whenever I get that started. And then at some point parlaying that maybe into, uh, actual brick and mortar space for production, um, for other people to do pop-ups, um, for me to do pop-ups and just to have like a, a communal space, you know what I mean? Find other revenue streams from that without having what's constituted as a restaurant. Yeah. Cause once you have a restaurant, I have to kick you out of the group. Good. I'll never have a restaurant. I don't, I'm not, I don't, I'm not that guy anymore. I've taken restaurants as far as I can go. And I've enjoyed it. And um, I had a great time. And I never thought, I never wanted to own a restaurant, which is always really, really, really funny. Even in culinary school, everyone's like, I'm going to own a restaurant. I'm like, wait, so there's like 30 of us in this class. We're all going to open a restaurant. That doesn't make sense. We're going to split up. We're all going to call what state we're going to open the restaurant in. And hopefully over time, because in CIA, it's like every three weeks, there's a class. So like campus is like a couple hundred kids. I'm like, oh, so a couple hundred restaurants are going to open in the next year. <laughs> like, Yeah, no, that doesn't work at all. But we did have to design a restaurant. I remember creating the restaurant and I was big into Cajun when I was a freshman in culinary school and I was going to have a Cajun restaurant, even though I'd literally never been to New Orleans. I guess that's, I guess that's, is that white privilege? What is the term for that? Where like, I just read some cookbooks and I was going to open a Cajun restaurant. You just wanted it to be Emerald Lagasse. I did. I did. He was from, he was from Massachusetts where I'm from and went to Johnston, Wales. Why not? But, uh, yeah, by the time I graduated four years later, I had no desire to even work in a restaurant. I'm really, really embarrassed of the concept I had, but it was also Massachusetts based. I named the restaurant converge after the band. And it was like this Gothic melting pot of like heavy metal music and fine dining. I guess um, like Destroyer in LA or something was pretty much the concept, but I'm not as good as Jordan Khan, so I don't know how to do any of that kind of stuff. But it was like this like super dark gothic restaurant, and my teacher was like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, it's sick, right? And they're like, no, it's not. So, you know, I always ask, what are some of your favorite culinary resources? 
or business resources? I would say uh, my friends, you know, reaching out to, you know, industry people, writing ideas by them, constantly brainstorming. I mentioned earlier, trying to network with other business owners um, locally who do completely different things. You know what I mean? Whether they're in the beverage industry or, or a lawyer or something and seeing how they run their business and how they're making and making decisions. Um, whenever COVID ends, I've broken away from networking because it's, it's exhausting. It's not fun. It goes into that whole, why am I waking up at 7 a.m. to go to a Zoom meeting if I'm my own boss? So I'm going to be hosting, you know, things at local places in my area to invite other small business people just to kind of exchange ideas and on a local sphere. And then who knows who they're going to introduce me to other restaurants to do pop-ups at other potential clients. And then, you know, that's like kind of my whole thought process behind building the business and getting to the next step or being more profitable or meeting my, my goals for this year. You know what I mean? Well, and you've had a weird year, I guess. I mean, you started your business not that far before COVID. So, like, you haven't had, like, a solid history of, like, normal business time either, I guess. Yeah, I had maybe about six months. um, But I wouldn't even say it was solid. It was, like, the start, like, the beginning phases. But, you know, and then I've seen all the waves online of, oh, I'm going to start doing this. Or I'm going to make CBD ice cream and deliver it because my restaurant, I'm the pastry chef that's closed. And I've seen all these people have these ideas, quit, not follow through and go in these little cycles of how can I build a revenue stream? And I'm just glad I wasn't stuck in the city trying to do that because there is a tenacity you have to have in order to do your own business. I mean, at least to be positive about it, I think you need to have a tenacity or just a general like fuck everybody else attitude. Sorry, I keep cursing. I keep feeling like I'm not supposed to, but you have to have that attitude of like, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do it till it kills me because how embarrassing it would it be to stop doing it? And is it just shame and embarrassment that's going to keep, keep propelling me to do this? No, I, I really don't care what people think about me. I'm not trying to be some, celebrity chef or tv chef i'm just someone who wants to pay my bills and be happy in my life you're not gonna see me um writing recipes on tiktok and doing kind of content like that because it's like that's time out of my day that i could be spent doing literally anything else you know what i mean granted expanding your brand is great and getting more customers is great but i just have no desire to engage in this thing that i don't want to do Culinary resources, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm going to be kind of a, an idiot and say Instagram's great. I'm going to say cookbooks is great, Kitchen Arts and Letters in New York City. Just trying to stay current, not only your podcast, but there's plenty of other podcasts where chefs get interviewed that I listen to and I enjoy. You know, obviously, you talk about Dave Arnold a lot. You know, I listen to uh, that show every Tuesday, Cooking Issues. Uh, I like Andrew Talks to Chefs. So it's like, how can I, uh, like a sponge, find ideas? I guess that's what I was trying to get to. And then I started going this nonsense hole. But the point is, like, how can I, while I'm working on myself, get other influences and other ideas that'll help me propel myself? Because otherwise you live in a box. Yeah. And I think one of the challenges that I found is like, 
now you're not just a chef, you're a business owner, right? Like for the longest time, it was like creating new recipes, refining those recipes, getting that down. But now most of my mental energy and time is like marketing, like building the business, building the brand, writing emails, doing that. Like, again, you know, I kind of wanted to start my own business so I could cook more, right? Like I was an executive chef for a company, but I felt like an HR manager. And I'm like, no, I'm going to leave my own, leave this thing and start my own personal chef business so I can cook again. And now it's like, uh, writing emails, doing marketing plans, doing photo shoots. It's like, I'm still not cooking as much. Well, it's kind of like what we were just talking about, where how can, how can you make enough money? How can you make the business sustainable enough that you don't need to spend the time on the marketing. And that's like part of wh- why I was discussing before about that extra $15 a person can change the budget of the food that I can put on the plate. And that'll put more money in my pocket to hopefully invest, reinvest more money into the business, whether it be equipment, supplies, et cetera. And then that's like really the mainstay or the, the thought behind it of like, how can I improve the business? How can I get more customers? And then at some point, I guess the goal is to have the demand be so high that it's like, oh, you didn't reach out six months in advance. Like there are no days. Like I'm doing three parties every week and I'm booked out for the next six months. And I did raise my prices even more or whatever. You know what I mean? I don't want to shut anybody out. I don't want to have a a ridiculous minimum of like a thousand dollars or something. No, anyone who wants to do it, like, you know, like that's why I'm here. If there's nothing on my schedule, I want to do the party. You know, I tell people to reach out two weeks in advance because it helps me get the menu approved, do all the planning, make sure that I can get all the stuff. Maybe I have to, you know, do a, some advanced prep to make sure it's ready, a multi-day process. Whether it be something simple like beef beef stock or demi-gloss, you know, in a, in a home kitchen, it, it, it sucks. It, it, you got to, you know, do have four pots and it's like a three-day process still, no matter what. And maybe it's old school. Maybe it's something I should eliminate. But it's something that's classic technique. It's an excellent thing to use. So I guess when you're doing that, the main the goal is to like kind of press forward. Um, and so I don't mind doing that kind of stuff. It's not what I want to do. But I think it's important to, you know, I don't like to exercise. But obviously, I don't want to you know, gain a lot of weight. So occasionally I do something. So it's the same with the business. You don't, maybe you don't want to market, but even if you spend 20 minutes a day while you're on the toilet, liking pictures on Instagram, then maybe that's like the bare minimum you need to do. And then maybe you do do a photo shoot once every couple of months. Cause you were talking the other day that you don't take pictures of the food. The pictures I post of my food are literally at the dinner. I pull out the phone. I go, you and, or I have my server start running the food, which is why I have a server. Hey, start running those and I'll just take the last one and then I'll go out with it. Because like to me, that's super invaluable. If I'm doing a five course dinner, that's five photos. That's content for an entire week on Instagram that you know I can I can have like that I'm getting paid to do. I'm not buying extra food. I'm not buying extra food like you were saying to plate it up the next day. I'm not investing any more time in the dish. You know what I mean? I'm cleaning up at the end of the night. And I know that I have content for the next week because I did one dinner that week. And I just think it's an invaluable thing, but that's why on larger parties, I, I, I have somebody because it's a nice little buffer to make sure, or I have them take pictures while I'm cooking. Hey, hey, I'm doing this while I'm plating. Can you just snap a picture? And then I'll, I'll have that. And then it, it sounds super corny, 
but just having some content is really nice. And I'd love to slow down on content. Like I'm tired. <laughs> I hate the internet. I'm tired, but it is, it has been like invaluable to me with expanding the business and, and getting people engaged and in, in being interested in booking parties. Yeah. The number of uh, websites and social media uh, accounts that I manage is ridiculous. And I'm ready to outsource some of that. Well, no, of course, especially I could only imagine like keeping up with chefs without restaurants, finding uh, chefs who aren't, you know, or all the other businesses. I have a list for you. I have a couple of people who I think would be great, but finding those people posting the content, even spending 15 minutes a day to reblog something or whatever, or posting the stories or what you're doing now, check out the, epi- the old episodes from the next month. While I take a break, you're still spending five to 10 minutes a day like managing it, replying to people. I'm sure you're loaded with emails. So like the fact that you're doing both things to me is super impressive. And uh, I don't know, it's probably very thankless, but I'm going to say thank you. (laughs) Thanks. I appreciate that. No, it's really great. But, you know, I'm really amazed at the nice uh, messages I get. Uh, You know, Instagram, the crowd has been really great, but like someone will just send a message and say like, hey, I've really been enjoying the show. And like that makes it worth it. But um, I'm going through actually a podcast accelerator course right now. Like I paid and I'm working with like a guy and a team to like grow the show and like get more followers. So like some of the things you can do and to hopefully monetize it. So we'll see how that goes. I believe in you. Thank you. Well, do you have any final parting words of advice before we get out of here today? Always go for it. Okay. Always go for it. I love or it. Or don't. But maybe that's not the best advice. Like, if you want it, go for it, maybe. If you want it, go for it. You know? But I don't know. I probably rambled on too much in that other passage, so I want to apologize. But I do think having that tenacity, having that grit, and and really believing in what you're doing and, and what your business model is will, will show through. I don't think you need to write bad or unrelatable content or SEO or whatever. If you believe in 100% what you're doing then it shouldn't matter because sometimes when you're trying to express what you want to express, like if you're overthinking it, then maybe you don't have that clear vision of what you want out of it. And I don't know. I feel like I'm definitely someone who granted uh, my business is always evolving and changing, but it's like true to the vision regardless. I know we spent a lot of time talking about clients being difficult or wanting surf and turf, But at the end of the day, I'm going to do my best to get them what they want and what I want and live in harmony and and really kind of keep building and shed a little light on, you know, what I want to bring to people's dining experience. I love that. I think that's a great place to leave it. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, no, seriously, Chris, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. For all our Chefs Without Restaurants listeners, this has been Chris Spear with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. As always, you can find us on all social media channels and at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org. Thanks so much and have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.